Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. This is the first of 2022. I'm the Executive Director of BCLT and your host, Wayne Stacy. And today we're here to talk about patent pleading forms. So 10 years ago, pleading forms for patent infringement were an incredibly hot topic. Uh, nearly every case involved someone filing a motion for insufficient pleadings. Uh, but that issue cooled off and people really stopped talking about it. But for anyone practicing in the Northern District of California, you knew that Judge Alsup hadn't forgotten about pleading forms and he never stopped talking about it. So it's no surprise that a case from his court made it to the federal circuit and is providing us with some fresh guidance on this old topic. So here to guide us through the discussion today and the decision and its aftermath is Henry Wong from White and Case. So Henry, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Wayne, and a happy new year to you and to everyone as well. And uh, as you said, this is an interesting topic. Uh, and uh, I think roughly today we wanted to uh, sort of go through the bot and made versus Sony decision, uh, as you mentioned, Wayne, that came out in July of last year. Um, but first talk a little bit about the background of patent infringement pleading standards and the forms, uh, as we just alluded to. Go through the case itself and some of the highlights of the Federal Circuit's decision. And then since it's been about six months, look at what some district courts have done in patent cases in terms of citing and applying bot M8 and how they've dealt with motions to dismiss uh, patent claims since then. Well, and for anybody that doesn't think it's relevant, um, Judge Albright uh, out of Waco issued an opinion um, just, I guess, yesterday on this, this issue. So it's, uh, it's a hot topic. Yes, definitely. And we'll touch a little bit on that and the decision that just, uh, that just came out as well. Um, so if, if I may, I think I'll start a little bit with some of the background as you were talking about Wayne from about a decade or a decade and a half ago and some of the prior pleading standards for patent infringement claims. So this all goes to the basic question of how much do you need to plead in your complaint in district court to get a claim for patent infringement and avoid dismissal under Rule 12b-6. And so that leads to a lot of other sort of individual sub-questions, such as whether you need to plead all elements of a claim, whether you need to identify all your dependent claims as well, and then also different standards for indirect infringement claims or doctrine of equivalence. So by way of background, and as some of the more senior audience members recall, there used to be rules uh, in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that talk specifically about how you could plead a sufficient claim for various causes of action. So there used to be rule 84 uh, in the federal rules, which said that uh, the forms in the appendix suffice under these rules and illustrate the simplicity and brevity that these rules contemplate. And that was referring of course to the appendix, which did have a series of forms for different causes of action. One of which was patent infringement. And so that takes us to what used to be Form 18 uh, and also previously Form 16 in that appendix for the federal rules. So since it's a podcast, we can't show the form, but we can go over it very briefly. Um, so you're looking at the old Form 18, a complaint for patent infringement. Uh, there are really only four statements that you needed to allege to suffice under Rule 84. First was the statement of jurisdiction. Second was a, a simple allegation that says on date, uh, United States letters patent number blank were issued to the plaintiff for an invention in an electric motor, for example. Uh, the plaintiff owned the patent throughout the period of the defendant's infringing acts, 
and still owns the patent. And then third, for the actual substantive allegation, uh, the sample form just said, the defendant has infringed and is still infringing the letters patents by making, selling, and using electric motors that embody the patented invention. And the defendant will continue to do so unless enjoined by this court. And then the fourth paragraph simply says that the plaintiff complied with the marking requirement and the notice requirement. So you can see this, the, the form of course is very simple. It just said the defendant infringed it identified the accused product, uh, electric motors, by example, and simply said the plaintiff had the patent and owned it, and it issued on a certain date. Uh, so there's no identification of claims required, no element-by-element element analysis. And in theory, under the rules and the forms at the time, that's all you needed to do to state a claim for patent infringement. So then that takes us to the 2007-2009 timeframe, when, of course, we got the Supreme Court's guidance in Twombly, and then Iqbal as well. Not for patent claims, of course, but for pleading civil claims generally. So in Twombly, Bell Atlantic versus Twombly, which came out in 2007, as, as everyone knows, um, addressed pleading standards in general. Uh, that, that addressed Sherman Act claims. And it said that a simple allegation of a conspiracy, a bare allegation, is not sufficient. So you had to do more than simply allege a conspiracy in that case. You had to state some facts to support that. And then, of course, there's Ashcroft versus Iqbal in 2009, which dealt with the uh, claims about unconstitutional detention. And there we get the quote that the plausibility standard, which is required for pleading, uh, is not akin to a probability requirement, but it asks for more than a sheer possibility that a defendant has acted unlawfully. And so since then, and as Wayne, you alluded to earlier, that led to a lot of litigation about what plausibility really means, particularly in the patent infringement context when there's complex technology and claim language involved. So next, I want to start briefly on a Federal Circuit case from 2007, McZeal versus Sprint and Nextel, uh, which dealt with a 95-page complaint that a pro se filed patent infringement. So there, the majority had said uh, this was fine because the specifics of how the accused products work could be determined through discovery. But Judge Dyke had dissented and, and, and in a way had, had said that uh, a bare allegation of literal infringement using Form 18, which was still in force at the time, was inadequate to provide sufficient notice to an accused infringer. And then he said, one can only hope that the rulemaking process will eventually result in eliminating that form. So sure enough, uh, with the 2015 revision to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 84 and the appendix of forms were abrogated. And the advisory committee said that the abrogation of Rule 84 supposedly does not alter existing pleading work standards or otherwise change the requirements of Civil Rule 8. But nevertheless, the forms in the rule were abrogated. And so uh, there was no longer any question that simply pleading according to the form would be sufficient necessarily. And district court said more, freedom supposedly to decide what was the sufficient pleading of a patent infringement claim in court. Well, and Henry, what we, we saw is that additional discretion resulted in pretty different standards for different courts. And you know, people had a, had a file of complaint forms to use if you're going to court A or court B. If you were going to some new court, you never knew what was gonna be sufficient or not. People just relied on the fact that it would be dismissed without prejudice and you could re replead. Uh, but it seems like when we move a little bit further now uh, to the, the body of eight case, maybe we're getting some good guidance on this. 
Yeah, it does seem like the Federal Circuit is providing a little bit more guidance. <clears throat> and uh, like you said, that does take us to the decision itself. Uh, so it's Bot MA versus Sony Corporation. Uh, it issued on July 13th. And it's a, a panel of judges, Diane Kulin and O'Malley. Uh, Judge O'Malley wrote the opinion in this particular case. Uh, so it does address pleading standards. And as you mentioned, Wayne, uh, it, it's a case that originates from Judge Alsop's court here in the Northern District of California. And of course, in theory, uh, the standards for a motion to dismiss and pleading are based on regional circuit law. Um, but of course, the Federal Circuit's substantive guidance on infringement claims uh, is, is going to be followed by district courts and have a lot of uh, influence on, on practitioners as well. So briefly, to go into the case, uh, Sabat so MA plaintiff asserted six patents related to video game machines against the, the PlayStation 4, Sony's PS4. And the case was ultimately transferred from New York to the Northern District of California. And there, Judge also dismissed four of the patents for failure to state a claim uh, after a motion to dismiss. So one issue that came up at that, the hearings apparently was the, this idea of reverse engineering for the complaint. And Judge also had asked, why can't you buy one of these products, the PS4, and take whatever code is on there off and analyze it. So Bot8 apparently said that it could do that and, and, and would do that to supplement the complaint, but then it claimed that it could not actually do that and reverse engineer the PS4 without permission, uh, in part because that would violate the DMCA. So that became an issue in terms of sufficiency of pleading and what kind of investigation a plaintiff needs to do in this particular kind of case. So ultimately, Judge uh, also, as we said, dismissed four of the patents, and then it went up on appeal to the Federal Circuit. So two of the patents were affirmed and two were reversed. On one of them that the Federal Circuit affirmed, they said that there was an inconsistency in pleading, which has always been an issue, right? If you, if you plead one thing and then plead something that's the opposite later on in the same complaint, that's always been a problem and makes your complaint non-plausible. So in this case, uh, that patent required that a game program and an authentication program be stored separate from a motherboard. And the Federal Circuit noted that the plaintiff alleged that the PlayStation 4's authentication program was stored on the motherboard. And according to them, quote unquote, that allegation renders bot M8's infringement claim not even possible, much less plausible. So that disposed of one patent. A second patent, the Federal Circuit affirmed dismissal uh, because there was a lack of factual allegations. Uh, supposedly, the, the complaint had identified four different storage components for a particular uh, aspect of the program, uh, but never stated which one of them was the one that actually stored this uh, claimed mutual authentication program. So that was another ground for affirmance in that particular case. So that brings us to the last two patents, which are probably the most interesting because the Federal Circuit reversed uh, on these two particular issues. So the claims here require execution of a quote-unquote fault inspection program before a game starts on the machine, in this case, the PS4. Uh, the Federal Circuit noted that BotMA did identify 12 different error codes that are displayed upon boot up and prior to the game starting. And so here, the Federal Circuit thought this is enough to plead, to plead infringement, to show that, uh, to raise a reasonable inference that this fault inspection program executes and completes before the game starts. And the panel also disagreed with the way Judge also required an element by element analysis. They said that um, they noted that Judge also had instructed the plaintiff that they must explain in the complaint every element of every claim that you say is infringed and or explain why it can't be done. And the panel said, we disagree with the district court's approach 
and reiterate that a plaintiff need not prove its case at the pleading stage. The Federal Circuit went on and said, to the extent this district court and others have adopted a blanket element by element pleading standard for patent infringement, that approach is unsupported and goes beyond the standard the Supreme Court articulated in Iqbal and Twombly. So the though, court is- Though Henry, I gotta say, it's interesting the the weasel words there, uh, adopted a blanket element by element pleading standard. Um, they didn't need to put that word blanket in there. That feels like a word that was negotiated into a draft because it seems that in some instances, element by element might be appropriate. Certainly seems to leave open that possibility, as you say, Wade. Uh, the, 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 the putting in that adjective there does seem to suggest that maybe in some complex cases or where there needs to be more explanation that you do need to go element by element to, to establish a, a, a patent infringement in your particular complaint. Uh, and as we'll see, we'll, we'll summarize later some of the key quotes from the case, but I think there's, the, there's also that sentiment that it depends to some degree on the technology, of course, and the sophistication uh, of the products, and what's being alleged and how much needs to be alleged in a particular case. Um, although this one, you know, this one involves memory and uh, storage, storage components and um, you know, arguably some, some complex technology. And the Federal Circuit did say that you still didn't need to do element by element analysis or engage in this reverse engineering to at least survive the, the pleading stage in this particular case. So I think that, that brings us to probably the, the third part of the, the discussion today, which is just looking at how some district courts have applied uh, bot M8 since then, since July, and whether there are really any trends uh, based on the cases that have come out since then. Um, and Wayne, as something you'd mentioned offline that you might expect that people are filing more motions to dismiss uh, now that they've gotten this extra decision that seems to make it uh, uh, easier to plead uh, but also might provide some grounds for challenging some complaints as well. So that'll be interesting to, to see as well. So at least as of this morning, there have been eight decisions uh, that, that are out that apply bot M8. Uh, four of them are den denials of motions to dismiss in patent cases. Three are grants of motions to dismiss. And one is a partial grant and partial denial. So I don't wanna go through all of these in detail. We don't have time for that, but I maybe touch on a few of these uh, briefly as we go through. Um, and as an initial observation, these are from a wide variety of courts, a wide variety of technologies and patents and products. Um, so it's interesting to see how courts have dealt with uh, pleading standards since then. So in terms of, first we'll go through the, the ones that, are, that granted motions to dismiss and so found that the, the pleading allegations were insufficient in, the, in those particular cases. First, there's a Okado Innovation versus Out of Store, uh, which is a decision from the District of New Hampshire. And there, the court found that uh, the patent which dealt with a container retrieval system uh, and the com corresponding complaint were sufficient to state a claim for infringement because uh, the court could infer that certain elements were met by the accused product. So there's a, an invocation of the inference standard that if you pleaded enough facts from which you can infer uh, infringement, that's sufficient to survive. Next is Barrier One Systems versus RSA. That's from the District of Delaware. And there, Judge Noriega also found that these infringement counterclaims uh, provided sufficient notice about what the products were, the accused products were. And they did go through the specific limitations of the independent claims. Uh, so that was enough to provide notice to the defendant. And she also said that there was a claim construction issue that needed to be resolved later on, uh, which is a common basis for denying a motion to dismiss. 
that's a similar ground that was used in Easy Dog versus Snap Dog, a decision from the Middle District of Florida, where the, the judge said that the court cannot resolve this dispute on a 12B6 motion without the benefit of claim construction. And finally, I think we get to another interesting case, which is Novoplast versus Implant from the District of New Jersey that dealt with uh, an insertion for a prosthetic implant, uh, or specifically an, an implant funnel for breast augmentation surgery procedures. So on an amended complaint, the, the district court judge said that uh, the claim chart that was provided was sufficient and it had pictures and arrows drawn. Um, and the judge said that this device is a physical apparatus uh, and therefore a visual comparison in such a case may provide a sufficient factual basis for the claims of infringement. Um, but the judge also noted that if the invention were an electronic device or a medication, then a photograph with arrows might well fall short of the Twombly-Iqbal standard. So I think this one's interesting, Wayne, because it does talk about how uh, the technology matters. If it's complicated, you might need to plead more, you might need to do more of a teardown and simply having pictures and arrows might not be enough. Something relatively simple like a funnel, anyone can understand, and then a few pictures in the claim chart might be enough in that particular case. It seems to, to come down to the how easy can you explain it in an oral argument? And if it's a, a head scratcher, you may lose and get a chance to replete at least once. Right. Which unfortunately, is where we've been for the last decade. So be interesting to see long term whether, whether bot M8 clarifies many things. But I do think when you, you've got these decisions where the uh, dismissal is granted, uh, I think there's some pretty clear lessons in those. Right, <clears throat> and that, that brings us to the three decisions where, uh, where motions to dismiss have been granted, uh, citing Baudin made. So in, in two of these, one is CS Tech US, Tech US versus Northern Zone, if I'm saying that correctly, that's from the Southern District of California. And another is Gardner versus Ingenious Designs. That one's from the District of Kansas, so two different courts. Uh, both dealt with pleading based on upon information and belief or on information and belief. And in both those cases, the district court judges said that's not enough. Uh, the allegations in those cases are actually more like what was used in Form 18, simply saying there's a patent, here's the accused product, defendants infringe with the addition of saying upon information and belief or on information and belief, which was always a sort of a dubious thing beforehand and district courts to handle that differently. So uh, it seems like even after Bada made, as in theory made it a little bit easier to plead, uh, putting in these sort of uh, wishy-washy statements like in, upon information and belief uh, might still not cut the mustard in front of these district courts. So that's one of the lessons I believe you were alluding to, Wayne. Uh, yeah, definitely, Henry, it seems, Look, on, on information and belief was always the, the easy way out, and it was permissible 15 years ago, but it seems like it may be an immediate red flag now. Um, if people are pleading on information and belief, file the motion to dismiss. Um, and you and I had talked about that you know, Rule 11 has a mechanism for handling this properly under 11b3, but you have to use the magic language and talk about what could be uh, discoverable. And you know, it may, that may be the path going forward that people need to follow. But um, if I was reviewing any complaint on information belief would definitely, definitely get my attention and may 
justify emotion. Right, and we'll have to see, uh, as you said, whether BotMed really changes that. If uh, district courts would be more more forgiving of that of, of that kind of language, given that uh, element by element analysis is not required, or if there still has to be some sort of statement that that information is going to likely turn up in discovery if they're given the chance to proceed. Um, so, in terms of decisions that uh, that granted dismissal, one one we one we wanted to touch on and that we previewed earlier was. One that out of the Western District of Texas, uh, Judge Albright's court just yesterday on January 3rd, uh, that actually granted a dismissal of a, of a complaint without prejudice, uh, but had cited bottom aid and discussed it to some degree. So here, uh, there have been several limitations that the defendant challenged in this case. It's Vervain versus Micron. And in the motion to dismiss, uh, these limitations were challenged and Judge Albright found that most of them were insufficiently pleaded uh, in this particular case. So one of them was this so-called hot blocks limitation that deals with a, sort of a system for managing memory blocks. And there he found that the allegations, including citations to exhibits attached to the complaint were insufficient. So Judge Albright noted that uh, in his words, that technology is not simple and that limitations at issue are material. Uh, and in particular, he said that the hot blocks limitations are material to practicing the asserted claim at least because the relevant prosecution history and the complaints suggest that these limitations captured the point of novelty, uh, which is interesting because it refers to that, that point of novelty test, uh, which has come up in the, the validity context, um, but also suggests that the relative importance of the limitation uh, based on his interpretation of bot MA sort of affects the level of specificity you need to put into your complaint. And there's also a portion of the of the opinion that talks about bot, bot M8, where he says uh, the bot M8 opinion does not elaborate on what, quote unquote, the materiality of any given element to practicing the asserted claims means. Uh, and he says, in the context of literal infringement, every claim element is material, which makes sense. Uh, but in his view, he says, a higher level of detail in pleading infringement may, depending on the complexity of the technology, be demanded for elements clearly material to novelty and non-obviousness. So uh, he's, he's looking at the materiality of a particular limitation and also looking at things like the prosecution history to make that to make the determination even at the, the pleading stage. So that's an interesting data point there in terms of how bot M8 is being interpreted uh, and applied uh, in this particular situation. It seems that Judge Albright may be filling in the idea of what is a blanket rule versus a, um, a very specific rule for a particular case, kind of filling in what the federal circuit left as a potential ambiguity. Right, and like you said, that, that's a good point you picked up on them, that maybe you know, the term blanket will be something that just has to be litigated out, uh, that, that both sides will use, both plaintiffs and defendants, to uh, address a particular situation. Well, and it comes back on, on a lot of these cases, you at least get one free shot to try to fix your problem. So nearly all of these are dismissed without prejudice, not all of them, but most all of them. And you can, you can replead if you have made a mistake. So um, we kind of see some iterations going forward to see how people correct these mistakes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the last decision well, we can touch on today is uh, one that's a, a split decision. It's a grant in part and it's a deny in part. Uh, it's JG Technologies versus the United States. So it's in the Court of Federal Claims. 
Uh, and for some claims, the, the, the judge uh, found that there was sufficient pleading and including uh, citation to exhibits attached to claim charts, uh, in particular, the identification of the accused products by picture and name through those exhibits were sufficient. So there's, there's one data point where using claim charts and then using exhibits to them can be enough to establish the, what you need to show for the accused products in that particular case. But then for other claims, uh, the court found that there is deficient pleading and that there needed to be more factual support that tied the accused products, in this case, uh, systems on, on cars to what the defendant, uh, in this case, the government uh, was doing with those cars and whether they were using all the models or whether the accused system was actually installed on all the cars that the government had bought in that particular case. So another interesting data point there. And that's just a reminder, you've got to move beyond the technology and make sure you get the rest of 271 pled properly if you're going to file a complaint. Right, right. <clears throat> so to sort of close, I just wanted to touch on three, three sort of key quotes from the bottom made decision that may affect uh, litigation going forward. Uh, so one of them is the statement that a plaintiff is not required to plead infringement on an element by element basis. And we went over that uh, and that's been discussed in some of the district court cases too. But that's a quote that will no doubt turn up in, in future motions practice. A second key statement is that the level of detail required in any given case will vary depending upon a number of factors, including the complexity of the technology, the materiality of any given element to practicing the asserted claims, and the nature of the allegedly infringing device. Uh, and as we just saw, Judge Albright has seized upon the second factor there, the materiality of the element uh, in assessing the sufficiency of the complaint in one recent case. And then third, the Federal Circuit also said that, uh, whereas here the factual allegations are actually inconsistent with and contradict infringement, they're likewise insufficient to state a plausible claim. And that has probably, of course, always been the rule that if you plead X and then you also plead not X at the same time, you might have pleaded yourself out of court. Um, so there's another example of that in the bot handmade decision. Well, I think the, the interesting thing, Henry, to see going forward um, is going to be based on that word blanket. So whether the idea that a plaintiff is not required to plead infringement on an element-by-element basis applies to every case, applies to some cases, applies to most cases, or just a few, um, I think there's a lot of wiggle room in that statement. Um, and I don't know that, like I said, that word blanket was negotiated into that opinion for a reason in my, in, in my experience. Yeah, I so, get, it, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I agree that's probably going to be a source of a, a lot of interesting litigation going forward. Well, my guess is that we'll get an opportunity to, to talk about several follow-up cases here within the next six to nine months. Yeah, and it'll be definitely interesting to, to follow that. And, and maybe some of these issues will go up to the federal circuit again uh, in the next year or so, and uh, maybe we'll get some more guidance. Uh, and uh, there'll, be, there'll be further interesting statements about that. Of course, with Judge O'Malley's uh, retirement uh, coming up soon, there may be someone else who takes the, takes the, the mantle on addressing uh, the pleading standards of the federal circuit, but that'll be interesting to see as well. We should know more soon. Well, thank you for your time and happy new year. Yes, thank you, Wayne. Happy New Year to you and to all the listeners. And uh, thanks again.